Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. And definitely check out those shows as well. A.M. Holmes is the author of The Unfolding, a novel. This was guest hosted by Juliana Goldman of Mama Den. A.M. Holmes is the author of 13 books, among them the best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, the novels This Book Will Save Your Life, The End of Alice, and Jack. Also the short story collections, Days of Awe, The Safety of Objects, and Things You Should Know. She writes for film and television and teaches in the creative writing program at Princeton University. All right, A.M. Holmes, author of The Unfolding. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, please tell us what The Unfolding is about. Oh, if only I could. <laughs> um, I would say it's a good question. It's, it's about many things. It is a, a large-scale novel. It is a braided narrative that is, on the one hand, the story of a family that's kind of coming undone, but as it comes undone, 
it comes to know itself better. So there's there are multiple sort of awakenings and kind of comings to consciousness. And it's also the story about the American sort of political system and what happens in 77 days between Obama's election and Obama's inauguration when a group of men who are not happy that he won decide they would like to reclaim their version of America or democracy. Uh, yes. <laughs> so tell us, how did you come up with this concept and how long, because it's it's out now, but it mm-hmm. takes place, as you said, in, in 2008. So why didn't why didn't it take place in, you know, election night 2016? Why why is it important to go back to 2008? Well, because it didn't take place in election night 2016 because I'd already started writing it before 2016. You had. So, yeah, okay. I started writing it before Trump was even a candidate. So it took me a very long time. And really the origin of it was the sense quite a while ago, and I had begun developing these ideas in a short story in my last book called Days of Awe, And the story is a prize for every player. And it's about a family that goes shopping in a big box store. And by the time they're done, they're shopping. The father's been nominated as a presidential candidate. And, you know, the campaign manager's printing flyers in the home office section and so on. And what I really was feeling quite a long time ago was that the American political establishment, both sides, so not one side in particular, had lost touch with the average American voter. And that politicians were essentially running to represent themselves. They weren't representing people or districts or any ideas anymore. And that coincided with the influx of what we now call dark money, but I would call private funding into the political process that exponentially grew. So in 2008, if you gave a candidate $100,000, that bought you a lot of access. But if you look at where we are now in the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo recently got $1.8 billion. So think how much that buys in terms of media, propaganda, information, all you know, all kinds of things that are very difficult to trace. And so I was thinking a lot about that and noticing that that was starting to happen. And I said to my editors, you know, something's on my mind. And they were like, but you don't write science fiction. I said, I know, but there's something out there. And then in 2016, they're like, where is it? You know? <laughs> so that that was the origin. Did you have to go back and rewrite portions after? No, uh, <laughs> weirdly not. You know, the interesting thing, too, was that I also felt that Obama's election became, in some ways, a marker in time in terms of the ways in which many of us felt very hopeful. There was like a new beginning, a sense of obviously a broader range of people being able to run for office, being able to win office and feel represented. Um, And at the same time, it did seem to trip off a barely latent kind of both racism and sexism that has kind of been blossoming ever since. And I look at even the rollback of Roe Mm -hmm. and can sort of tie it to that. And and a a very deep kind of fear among some parts of of our population of losing power and losing control over their version of America. Fear and feeling threatened. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And now you, the central character, one of the central characters is the big guy. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the big guy and why he is the big guy, never named, sure. when other characters, when everyone else is named? Sure. So the big guy, and I think his name secretly does come in like somewhere once, but it's it's You not, have to read to find out. I know, it's not really, yeah. I think, you know, the big guy to me is the big guy because he is a person who is like many other people and many people that I know. And he's somebody who 
occupies a lot of space, feels super confident in his own control of his world and believes that he knows best about how things should be done and doesn't see the way that he affects others around him, which to me, that is that is a, and again, not to reduce people to stereotypes, but there is that that kind of person who lives among us and walks, it walks among us. And for me, the interesting thing was to watch the big guy as those around him, his, his wife and child begin to kind of know more about themselves and how they feel in relation to the family, the political situation. But also as he comes to know them better and himself, he also realizes, what if I'm a jerk? What if I'm not the good person I think I am? And so that was also very interesting to me about what happens to somebody if they begin to realize that the way they occupy space maybe is a little bit toxic. I kept thinking whether or not the big guy and the forever men would have done what they did, knowing that it would eventually lead to Donald Trump. I think that's a very interesting question. And I think that the truly philosophical answer would be along the lines of yes and, mm -hmm. <laughs> they say stand-up comedy, because on the one hand, I think many people could see Donald Trump as a step on the way towards something else. So he's not really the definitive moment in time that anyone is aiming for. And the philosophy that sort of drives the big guys, group of friends known as the forever men, about reclaiming these ideas, the first thing that people do when they want to reclaim a country is disturb and disrupt. And so their idea is to create you know, in the way that you drop a pebble in the water, it makes rings, but you don't want those rings to be traceable back to you. And so the, the fact and the ways in which the Republican establishment did ultimately get behind Donald Trump and stays behind Donald Trump, I would say, is he their kind of person? No, he's really not. They are in many ways much more old school, graceful. I think they probably have a little bit more of a moral core, although I'm not entirely sure, because what I see now happening tells me that the Republican Party right now is interested in power at any cost, which is really, in a way, what these guys are saying, too. And it's scary. It is. And you kind of wonder also, had had John McCain been elected, yeah. had Barack Obama not, would, you know, we wouldn't have been set on this course. But at the same time, remember, the vice presidential candidate was Sarah Palin. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so where would that have taken us? I, um, that's also, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying these are, I love right. these kinds of questions. Like what it's if fascinating question. to think about. And I don't really know because, you know, it's interesting when we look at even McCain's concession speech. So he gave a very graceful, generous concession speech and, and very decent and talked about how people needed to get behind Obama, that they had many common goals and so on and so forth. That was probably the last polite speech given, you know, and so it is interesting. But the other thing is you could look at, OK, so John McCain, you know, ultimately got ill, had a brain tumor. Would Sarah Palin, is there a world in which Sarah Palin would have ended up as president, which to me is as scary as Donald Trump. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's the the also the ways in which politics and the posturing and the performance aspect have been pushed out so far that they are officially cartoonish. Which is interesting because historically, if you look way back in history, you know, the posturing and, and performance of early political, you know, stump speeches and so on is absolutely performative. So, you know, are we full cycle? Sort of. But the, the stakes feel higher because I think we're also aware that we are more of a global economy and more of a global society. So it's not just what happens here. 
what happens here goes everywhere. And I also feel like the pressures on our democratic norms and institutions are very much strained at a breaking point, at a tipping point, however you want to call it. Yeah. Well, how did you get in the head inside the head of a conservative white male? What how did you do how did you do the research? I have special powers. Um, you know, I would say that for me, you know, creating these characters whose backgrounds, upbringing, philosophy is very different than my own is always both the fun and beauty of writing. Because for me, part of it is I write to understand things and I, I need to understand things that are not my experience. So, you know, there's so many teachers of writing and people say, write what you know. And I think, well, I've run out. I mean, I've written 13 books. Joyce Carol Oates has written like 80 books. You know, I need to write to explore things. So I ask my characters lots of questions. I literally will ask sort of, what's up with you? Why are you here why do you think this way? How did your thinking evolve? Was this always where it was? What makes you so nervous about someone like Barack Obama? What makes you so nervous about power being more equally distributed? And I will say there are often times that a character can be very resistant. They're like, why should I tell you? Or who are you? Or, you know, and then there's other ways in which you, you flatter them to get information, which you know, as a journalist, you know, you're like, well, you know, that's so interesting. How did you come to be? What were you doing before? What does this mean to you? And so I really spend time trying to understand them from a psychological, an economic, a sociopolitical level. And then I think a lot about who are they hanging around with? What, what is their idea of a good time? What is their idea of family? What do they value? So it's interesting. It's definitely hard work. And then you have to kind of always be asking, is this true for this character? It's not It's not an external application of what I think to a character. It has to come from within them. And again, that's, I mean, that is the best magic of fiction. I love this though. These conversations, are yeah. they with people who, who are in, so like political figures or people steeped in politics, or is it just like yeah. in your own head that you're kind of going back? All of back the and, above. Yeah. So all of the above. I mean, I, I often, you know, spend time with lots of different kinds of people. And I will ask real people in reality, Mm. um, also reading, you know, constantly reading everything like, you know, John McCain's books, uh, Ronald Reagan's books, books written by their speechwriters, books written by journalists, you know, history of all kinds, realizing also that we do live in a world where history tends to be reported by the majority. So looking at histories, how do we knit it all together? And then a lot, just thinking, talking to the characters. I mean, literally Love it. asking them to reveal themselves to me, which again, sounds like, you know, woo woo, but that is the magic of fiction. And that is for me, it is, it is both the fun of it. And I would say in, in some ways, the hard work of it, because you also need the character. And it sounds so funny to say to trust you enough that you're not going to sort of sell them out, that you're not, they're not there. You're not going to, you know, sort of turn on them. So I always think too, I'm not there to make judgments about these people. I'm there to sort of provide an illustration and a juxtaposition of what's happening in their world, in the larger world, and allow the reader to actively participate in creating their own sense of how they feel about these people. You know, a lot of times this comes up so much lately, and it's a very modern idea. People say, am I supposed to like these people? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you don't read crime and punishment and think, I love that guy. No one reads Lolita and thinks, wow, that guy's a wonderful, he's a catch. I mean, you know, the the books that, that affect us over time are not about characters being likable. That's, that is us sort of seeking 
some other kind of comfort that literature can provide, but it is not the dominant piece of it. So I don't think, are they likable? I think, did I tell their story well? Did I represent them well? You know, would they disagree with how I've described them? They might. <laughs> this is amazing. I want to, I like just want to talk about this all day. Yeah. For this book, did, did you develop the big man first? Did you develop Megan, Charlotte, right. or do you develop them all together so that they are who they are based on the relationships they have yeah. with their characters? So it's, it's, it's all, all of that. So both, I mean, there's, there's not one singular answer. I would say, you know, definitely the big guy, Charlotte and Megan come first in a way Charlotte was an easier character because I, she, she, her sort of pain or the difficulty of being a woman of a certain age who grew up being asked, not what do you want to be, but what kind of man do you want to marry? And her alcoholism was something I could, I could relate to. And it's interesting. There's, I have absolutely no experience with alcoholism or that, but I felt it was an interesting way of her dealing with her, her suffering. And then I also look at you know, historical precedent. So Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General John Mitchell, Pat Nixon, Betty Ford herself, you know, all there is, it is difficult to be a political wife. And although this woman is not a political wife in the sense of being related to the candidate, she lives a life where there's a lot of pressure and in its way, a certain kind of isolation. So she, you know, came quickly. Megan to me is interesting because Megan is a young girl. And at first I would say Megan to me is the kind of girl that you might meet, you know, when you go to a friend's house and that's the daughter is there and she's a little vague and a little blurry. And you think, I'm not sure there's anyone in there, you know, and that's a kind of young woman. And then the question is, when does she wake up? How, when does she begin to realize what's happening in the world around her and that she needs to define herself, not just in relation to her family and do I agree or disagree, but in, in relation to the larger world. So that's always a moment, too, where as a writer, you're going, God, I hope she wakes up because we all know people who are 30 and still are like, well, Daddy, what should I do? You know? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 
20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. Uh, I love this scene in the, in the beginning where it's election night and Megan's mother is taking her around like the buffet. First of all, I don't want to give anything away. I will never eat communal nuts ever again. (laughs) That that has come up so much on, on book. I'm over the nuts. (laughs) I mean, there's so many, uh, the nut nuts, maybe we could say yes. the nutty, yeah. <laughs> the nutty yes. nuts, but yeah, no, I, I liked, I really loved how you painted that picture. And, and I kept thinking of like, this called the unfolding, but, and you said this in the beginning, but it also is like the awakening yeah. and sort of the, you know, with her, like her eligible to vote the world that Definitely. she is now yes. brought into. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, I also really, there's so many sort of weaves to this story because on the one hand, Megan and her father, the big guy, share a love of history. And that's the thing that they kind of bond on. And obviously the big guy loves the political process. And so it's a big deal to him that Megan is voting for the first time. Uh, So that's sort of their sort of thread. But I also wanted to look at Charlotte and Megan in terms of a multi-generational story about women's lives and, and empowerment or lack thereof. And so that was also a piece of it that had to sort of be woven through. And it's interesting because it, it part of why a book like this took so long is there is a lot of going back in and kind of digging deeper and making sure that those threads are pulled all the way through in terms of how they experience each other and how it moves over time. And they become, I mean, to me, I'm a smiling because they become very, very real and very dimensional. When you're writing and you are so in it, yeah. how do you take yourself out of it? You know, how do you live the life of the writer and right. the, the, the person outside right, of her. Sure. Yeah. And the teacher and the parent yeah. and the partner and yeah. the, you know, board member and all those things. All of it. Really hard. Yeah. It, I mean, we, as, as everyone knows, who's doing more than one thing, you know, it's always hard at the beginning of a book because that's the part where you really need to be deep in it, in your head. And then at a certain point it does begin to gather kind of momentum. So it's easier to kind of transition in and out. But I always feel like it's like, you know that sound on the highway when there's a giant truck behind you and you hear it shifting gears to like go up up a hill? And that's what it feels like. Coming in and out of writing feels like, God, I hope the gear doesn't slip or I hope I can do this. Um, and it's really difficult. I mean, it is difficult to make those transitions and there's no getting around it. Do you have to like set a very rigid schedule for yourself where you're like, okay, this is the period of the day where I'm going to be writing and then I like, I'm going to try and turn off or like, start the, the process of, of I was, extracting. We're, at that, we're at that easy as we all know, you know, yeah. every day. I mean, I think, you know, start early. <laughs> That's always a, a good start, but you know, there's the dogs have to go out. The kid has to go to school that, you know, 
the sink is broke. I mean, there's all the things that happen in life. And, and I do teach and I do sit on a lot of boards and I do also work in TV and it's a lot, but I, I mean, I try, I try to write every day, uh, but I will say right now, since the book came out and I'm on tour and teaching, I'm not writing yeah. and I totally feel it. And I feel, Oh my God, I'm falling behind. I, you know, I need to have another thing going. I think having a practice and I, I say this to my students all the time is very important. And sometimes it doesn't matter what you do with that time. You know, the, the bad thing about being a writer is if your schedule has a blank on it and it's like, oh, look, Wednesday, I have nothing. Inevitably, instead of thinking, oh, Wednesday, I'm writing, you go, oh, I can go to the dentist. Oh, I can get my hair cut. Oh, I can do all the things I haven't done for six months. So holding that space is difficult. And I will say, I think if a person can know what time of day they might be able to grab that time, trying as best you can to protect it is really important. And then going away if you can. (laughs) That's what I was going to ask. I mean, I I imagine that a lot of this was written during the pandemic, right? I mean, you had been writing it for a while, but- I had been, but I certainly finished it during that. I mean, you know, the pandemic was hard. (laughs) The pandemic was difficult because on the one hand, it also meant uh, the kid was out of school and home and I was still teaching, Zoom teaching and- had COVID and all the things. So uh, the, the upside of the pandemic as a writer was everything else stopping, all of the social things stopping, the need, the commuting to things stopping. Uh, that was really good. And, and, you know, certainly allowed for an interior time. But I will also say, as that's happening, our political situation was also getting weirder and weirder in this country. And so the demand to bear witness and to be watching TV all the time was very high. And a friend of mine came over one night and and stayed and, you know, we were watching, we watched the news all the time. And the friend said, do you do this every day? We're like, yeah, yeah, we do this every day. She's like, oh my God, I would kill myself. (laughs) I'm like, we could change a channel. I mean, not a problem, you know, but so that was also interesting to realize that not everybody felt as fixated on things. You know, um, it reminds me when I was in it every day covering yeah. the White House um, and I would take vacation, I would go away for a week. I would purposefully go off Twitter, any social media. I would like go on a news diet completely right. so that when I came back, I would see what did I actually miss. And yeah. I found that rarely did I miss anything. Right. right. Yeah. Of consequence. Right. But see, that's also to me super interesting because I think one of the difficulties is the news cycle is so accelerated. And and by that I don't even think it's 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 not even the news cycle. It is just the the desire for constant breaking information and the fact that you know newspapers used to be published twice a day, once a day. But now the stories too are published all during the day and updated all during the day. So if we are thinking we're doing our job, we are watching that all the time. And you're right. When, when you take a break from it, nothing happens, but it's very difficult because there's also times where I felt obligated to attend to it. Yeah. I love um, a quote on your website. You said people should pay more attention. Everyone wants attention, but no one wants to give attention. Yeah. I think that's kind of true, right? Is that kind of your, just sort of the how you always think about writing and and what you're going to be um like the subjects that you're going to be tackling i think i always am and it's interesting i i would say you know and, and this book kind of clarified on the one hand this book is the most sort of 
overtly political and also the most overtly historical. And that was a lot of fun and a lot of research. But I think my subject matter has always been America, World War II to the present, you know, like, like a course. And I definitely in this book, you know, look at the ways in which the end of World War II and the Eisenhower administration and that, that speech about the rise of the military industrial complex has absolutely affected us socially, politically, economically from then till now. And so I'm always writing, and, and I guess the fact is I'm, I'm reading American society and culture. That is what I do. And that I feel like I use the tools of fiction to witness it, to, to chart it, to talk about it in ways that hopefully prompt a conversation. You know, I never would say, oh, I know what to think about this, but I definitely think I want people to be talking about these things. I mean, and, and you know, it's a little bit uncanny because obviously this book sort of predicts events along the lines of what happened on January 6th, which, you know, I had hoped for the book to come out just before the last election. And, you know, publishing takes a year to get the book through the cycle. And, you know, another book, Music for Torching, which ends horribly in a school shooting, came out the day of Columbine, which was our first, you know, large scale thing like that. So I think it's a lot about reading what's happening and trying to put the pieces together in a way that let us see things, if not differently than to see them refracted in some ways that gives us a little bit more insight, hopefully. Well, what is your crystal ball telling us now? My crystal ball is so anxious right now. Oh no, maybe <laughs> we need to end it right here. And crack it. You know, I am, I am anxious. I would say one of the things that you said early on too, is that so much has changed in the sense that things that were norms that we assumed behaviors that that our elected officials would would do the ways they would give documents back the way they would leave office the way, all of these different things have now been shown to be not things that one could assume so there is no there is no assumption of the best intentions and there is no assumption of shared desires and the and the the deeper parts that are darker is there is no sense of what truth is. When Kellyanne Conway started talking about alternate facts, yeah. the game changed. Mm -hmm. And that is really scary. And the, the ways in which, because of the, the speed of media, the social aspect of it, and the narrowing of where people get information and the way it's even delivered to them, puts us in a really complicated spot where anything could happen and really anything could happen. You is know, there yeah. Is there anything that you're reading that is giving you an optimistic view of, yeah. of uh, the future? I, I, I mean, that's why Megan is there, right? Because if, yeah. I, if I just look at the older people, um, and I feel like we're also at a generational divide, and, I, and the young people kind of need to hurry up and get here, because I think my sense is that they, they can do more. The generational divide is such that I'm worried because the ways in which the, the Republican Party doesn't seem to care anymore. It really is power at any cost. And that that is very dangerous. So that worries me. I feel like Megan is there as an idea that there could be another kind of new beginning, but I feel like we're in for some hard times before we might get to that. So perhaps a sequel with Megan? Well, yeah. that, that is, there is a lot, I have a lot more material about Megan. Uh -huh. And I think it is interesting to think about what happens sort of when the old guy and that generation fully fades. And, and that that is a generation that is, you know, truly, I mean, if this was 2008 and he was what, like 
60 something probably. I mean, he's old now, the big guy, if he's still alive. And so that that is a possibility. I, I was um, in the UK when Margaret Atwood did the launch of the Testaments and did a big event there. And, you know, she I mean, she's an icon to me. And that it's interesting to think about. But, you know, Megan, if I was to write about her, it wouldn't be 2024 and it might not even be 2026. I mean, I, that's the part I'm really nervous about. I'm nervous about 2024. I'm nervous about, you know, next month. <laughs> I would um, love to see Megan in 2030 and what that world looks like. I think right? I would. Yeah. But we don't know. Cause the other right. thing is we don't know what will happen between now and then. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. It is interesting to think about. Well, for all those who want to be thinking about it and thinking about the what ifs and the way of looking to the future, who also laughing and, and chuckling their way yes. with a smile. Let's just also make the sure unfolding. we yeah. yeah. The humor part is essential. We didn't even talk about that. But, you know, it is it is I mean, it is filled with humor and yes. filled with history. But the important piece about humor is it allows us to cut more deeply and to talk about things that would otherwise be difficult to talk about. So I'm sorry I stepped on. I stepped no, on. no, no. I was good. Humor yeah. and finding like finding the humor in life is so important, even, yes. you know, in the yeah. darkest of times. So, yes, um, thank you for giving oh, that you. to us. A.M. <laughs> Holmes, author of The Unfolding. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 